Well, the book of Genesis was written by Moses for the Israelites while they were in the desert after they left slavery in Egypt, while they were on their way toward occupying the land that God had promised them earlier. And this is the context of the original readers of Genesis. They were out of Egypt, no longer slaves there, on their way to occupying the land that God promised them. And God inspires Moses to write the book of Genesis. And they were the first audience. They were on their way to take their new home in the promised land. And remember, the promised land was not vacant. This is the report that the spies brought back in Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 to 28. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel, in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them, and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The promised land was not vacant. And so going into the promised land meant war. War with strong people. War with giants. For that's what the descendants of Anak were. Some speculate that perhaps even the infamous giant Goliath, whom David would eventually fight so many years later, was a descendant of Anak. In any case, the Israelites were on the brink of war with the inhabitants of the Promised Land. How would you feel in a situation like that? Would you feel like you were about to be surrounded by people with a different worldview? People hostile toward you? People capable of harming you? Would you wonder about the legitimacy of your religion and ask yourself the question, is this worth dying for? Listen to the response of the Israelites to this report from the spies. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? We're privileged to live in the 21st century in Barbados where we're not presently facing literal war with those who disagree with us. Most of us, if not all of us, have never been physically assaulted simply because we believe in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So our external circumstances differ from those Israelites to whom Genesis was originally written. But do our hearts differ so drastically from the hearts of the Israelites in the desert as they approach the Promised Land? Do not we at times feel like we are surrounded by hostile, harmful people with a different worldview? Think of a day on the job site or in the office. Do you not at times find yourself, and be honest with yourself, somewhat fearful on your way into work? Or weary at the 
thought of having to yet again fight the spiritual battle of faithfulness to God amidst opposition. Do you not at times think to yourself, even if you don't say it out loud, is God really with me? Is following the God of the Bible really worth it? Is Will the God of the Bible really overcome in the end? Or would it have been better if I had never begun to follow Christ? Would it be better for me to go back to Egypt, so to speak? Into the lives of those whose hearts were or are growing faint. Into the lives of the fearful. Into the lives of the doubting. Into the lives of those wrestling with challenges of believing in God. A God who demands utter allegiance, even when it appears that all odds are stacked against you. Into these lives, God reveals himself as creator in Genesis chapter 1. After all, it was at this time when the Israelites were no longer in Egypt and on the brink of war in the promised land, that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis. So how would Genesis 1 have helped and benefited them? Perhaps it can help and benefit us in the same way. The portrait that Genesis 1 paints for us of God can be summed up in one word. Glorious. Which means weighty, important, excellent, impressive, etc. After reading Genesis chapter 1, you have to see that God is truly glorious. And if God is truly glorious, then we should have steel in our spines. If God is truly glorious, then we should not be weak and wondering and doubting and mistrusting and confused. If our God is truly glorious, we have nothing to fear as we go to do battle with the descendants of Anak and the other strong inhabitants of the land. For if Romans 8.31 is true, and Genesis 1 paints a glorious portrait of God, which is also true. If, then if God is for us, who can be against us? So here's the big idea of the message this evening. Seeing the glory of God in creation makes us strong and courageous. So let's consider the glory of God revealed in the creation account now under three headings. The first is the superiority of God's person. The second is the certainty of God's purpose. And the third is the efficacy of God's word. The goal is that we would recover a high view of God and then have strength and courage to continue to follow him faithfully as we make our way to the promised land. So let's begin with the superiority of God's person. Implicit in the Israelites' doubt about going into the Promised Land was doubt about God's care and preservation for them. They wondered whether God would, and perhaps they wondered whether God could protect and preserve them in their conquest of the Promised Land. Their fear of war with the inhabitants of the land was implicitly connected to a low view of God. Would God actually do what He said? Would God even be able to do what He said? Is God willing and able to bring us into this land? Is God willing and able to defeat our enemies before us? 
These were the kinds of doubts about God that the Israelites were entertaining. And this is why after the sections that I read to you already from Numbers chapter 14, God responds to their unwillingness to go into the promised land like this. Quote, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? Our fears and doubts stem from the same low view of God as the Israelites had. If the Israelites and if we had a proper view of God, how could we ever doubt His willingness and His ability to care for His people and to preserve His people in the midst of their enemies? If we saw God's glory properly, we could never say with the Israelites, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones would be, will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? If we saw God's glory properly, we could never say that. If we saw God's glory clearly, we could never doubt that God would preserve His people and bring them through the battles and wars of their lives in ultimate victory. But our low views of God, our small views of God, keep us guessing and wondering whether God is willing and able to do good to His people. If we don't see God Himself as glorious, naturally we will wonder whether God is able to do glorious things. One of the things that God was concerned to display in His dealings with the Israelites was His superiority over the gods of the nations. Consider, for example, God's statement in Exodus 14.4 about His intention to drown Pharaoh and his army in order to, in order to show His glory or superiority over Pharaoh. Listen, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Why is God going to drown Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea? In order to get glory over them. In order to show that the gods of Egypt cannot compete with the God of Israel. In order to show that even if the most powerful army in the world is arrayed against the people of God, if God has decreed their salvation, God will accomplish their salvation. Consider King David's reflection on the Exodus many years later. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by, dri by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. One of the things we see in even just these verses that I just read to you, Exodus 14.4 and 2 Samuel 7.23, let alone the rest of the Bible, is the reason for the sustained, prolonged, and dramatic encounter between God and Pharaoh and God and Pharaoh's magicians. The reason given to us in Scripture for these sustained, prolonged, and dramatic encounters is this. God wanted it to be absolutely clear that Yahweh is superior over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. 
God wanted to be crystal clear about that. He did not need ten plagues. But he drew it out in order to display again and again and again his superiority over Pharaoh and his gods. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 23 tells us that not only did he bring them out of a place uh, um, in order to be his people, but he drove out before his people the nations of Canaan. And again, God's plan here is to demonstrate his superiority over those nations and their gods. So God acts, this is axiomatic of God. God acts in public, sustained, irrefutable, and dramatic ways throughout Scripture in order to display His glory over false gods. In order to display His superiority over false gods. The gods of Egypt are not glorious. The gods of Canaan are not glorious. There is one glorious God, and Yahweh is His name. This is why the Old Testament draws out on and on and on and on and on and on. Why there's so much waiting and so much expectancy and so much drama in the Old Testament. It's because, as Calvin said, this world is a theater where we observe the glory of God on display. This is why all of these things are drawn out and drawn out and drawn out. It's not because God could not have just instantly, as soon as Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, redeemed and reconciled and ushered in the new world. But He wants to make His glory manifest. And He wants fallen people to see that really all other gods are bankrupt. No one else is glorious. Only He is glorious. So Genesis 1 has the same function as Exodus chapter 14 and the events surrounding that. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Genesis 1, one of the things that Genesis 1 was written for was to show the Israelites and the Egyptians and us, whoever cares to listen, the superiority of Yahweh over all other so-called gods. Look at your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase the heavens and the earth is just an idiom which means everything. In other words, only Yahweh is the creator. Everything else and everyone else is merely a creation. Which means that all other so-called gods are just creations. Listen to this. At best, other so-called gods are merely fallen angels who rebelled against God and were defeated and cast out of heaven. At best. Therefore, the gods of the nations, every other god but Yahweh, ranges somewhere between being a mere block of wood created by human beings that has no spiritual power whatsoever to being, at best, an angel created by the one true God and under his thumb. All the false gods fall somewhere on that spectrum. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the case-by-case -case specificity of Genesis chapter 1 covering every aspect 
and every sphere of creation drives home this point. God is not merely the God of one nation or one sphere. God is the God of all nations and all spheres. In 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 23, we read about... Uh, uh, well, in 1 Kings 20, first of all, we read about a battle. Syria comes up against Israel. They come to do battle against Israel. And Yahweh defeats Syria before Israel. And then in 1 Kings 20 and verse 23, 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 23, we read that the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Israel's gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. This was, in ancient times, and still is, a common way of understanding the world in which we live. There are gods of the hills, and there are gods of the plains, and there are gods of the forest, and gods of the water, and so on and so forth. And I say this is a common way, still, of understanding the world in which we live, for two reasons. One is because there actually are many people in the world with a religious system that is explicit about this kind of polytheistic belief. There are people who just really openly believe in many, many gods with many, many different spheres of authority. Any polytheistic religion believes this sort of thing. But it's also common even among those who consider themselves irreligious, non-religious, and sometimes it occurs even among professing Christians. Consider how we sometimes compartmentalize our lives as if certain spheres have one authority and other spheres have another authority altogether. For example, if you want to succeed at work, you sacrifice your time and energy and make it a priority to serve this person or that person and uh, appease them and offer sacrifices which would be pleasing unto them in order that you might curry their favor and advance at work. Right? Or if you want to succeed at home, you sacrifice your time and your energy to make it a priority to serve this person or that person and curry their favor in order that they might bless you and that you might succeed at home in whatever way it is that you want to succeed, right? When we live our lives primarily oriented toward our boss or primarily oriented toward our husband or our wife or, or our kids, right? We don't want to you know, upset them or, or do something that you know, is going to cause some sort of behavioral situation that we'd rather avoid right now. When we live our lives going around, tiptoeing around other people, living human-word lives instead of living a God-word life, functionally what we're doing is saying that God is God of that part of my life but not God of this part of my life. What we need to do is actually live as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters with God in the forefront of our minds and say, how does God want me to be a husband or a father or a wife or whatever? Right? Or when we go to work, again, we need to be God-word right? and say, I'm going to work as unto the Lord. So really, whatever uh, God wants me to do here, that's what I'm going to do here. And I play by the rules that He gives me in His Word, not some sort of other set of rules that apply when I clock in and, and then go back to worshiping God when I clock out, right? So functionally, you can kind of see how we sometimes act like there are gods over various spheres of our lives when we don't live, as uh, the old theologians used to say, Coram Deo, before the face of God. 
in every area of our lives. So instead of compartmentalizing our lives, we need to live as if God Himself is present and ruling in every sphere of our lives. Because He is. When we are at home, God is present and ruling. When we are at work, God is present and ruling. When we are in this neighborhood, God is present and ruling. When we are in that neighborhood, God is present and ruling. When we are with this crowd, God is present and ruling. When we are with that crowd, God is present and ruling. And so on. We must live Godward lives. Look at your Bibles again, Genesis chapter 1. God made the light and the darkness. God made the land and the sea. God made the birds and the fish. Every insect, human beings, and everything that grows. Every shrub, every herb, every bush, every tree, everything. The heavens and the earth. So again, back to 1 Kings chapter 20. The Syrians attack Israel and are defeated before Israel. And the servants of the king of Syria say to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, and they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. So the Syrians try to fight Israel again on the plains. But God says to the king of Israel in 1 Kings 20 and verse 28, because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. God is concerned that we and the Israelites and the Syrians understand this. That He is not God over the hills only. But he is God over the plains, because God created the hills and the plains. God is not God over the Israelites only, but he is God over the Egyptians too, because God created both the Israelites and the Egyptians. God is not God over the wilderness, where the Israelites found themselves, in Genesis chapter 1, only, but he is also God of the promised land because he flung the wilderness and the promised land. As the creator of all things, God's sphere of sovereignty and rulership and power and magnificence and glory and benevolence and relevance are not limited whatsoever to every person on the face of the earth, in every country on the face of the earth, on the hills and in the valleys, Yahweh and Yahweh alone is God. He is superior over all other gods. And by the same token, God is not God of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church only, but also the God of your home. And God is not the God of your home only, but also of your office or your factory or wherever it is that you find yourself for your daily ground. God is not God only when you get to work, but God is also God in your commute. We need to live as if this is really true. We need to live Koran Deo, as the theologians sometimes say, before the face of God. As if God is really present and involved in our lives, as the Bible says He is. Seeing and guiding and ruling by His providence in every sphere. So the Israelites, who were reticent to go up into the Promised Land, had a low view of God which produced 
fear and anxiety in them. They did not trust that God's power extended into and over the promised land and its inhabitants. They thought that perhaps God was a God of the wilderness only and not of the promised land. Sometimes we might feel like that too, that God is a God who maybe just might not be able to handle a certain situation in our lives. Or maybe is not concerned about a certain situation in our lives because it's outside his sphere. Sometimes we might feel fearful and anxious because we just wonder if God is God here in the challenge, in the difficulty that we're facing. Whether we are out of reach here wherever we find ourselves. We know that God has led us into the wilderness, but we doubt and wonder whether God can lead us out of the wilderness and into the promised land. We wonder whether God can sustain us in the midst of the adversity we face and whether God can overcome the various obstacles we face. Or has God simply brought us out of Egypt, as it were, to die? Genesis 1 teaches that God is superior to all other gods as He rules over both the hills and the valleys. He rules over all things. He is as sovereign in the promised land as He is in the wilderness. He is as sovereign in the low points of our lives when we're struggling along, when we're hurting, when we're having challenges and difficulties, as He is in the good times, when everything is going smoothly. God is sovereign over your circumstances, and God will surely bring His plan for you to pass. For Genesis 1 also teaches that God's purposes are certain and sure. Let's consider now the certainty of God's purpose. The scripture plainly teaches that God created the world in six days. So here's my question for you. Why did it take him so long? Why wouldn't the God who can speak something so powerful and so beautiful as the sun into being in an instant, why would he not just speak everything into being in an instant? Certainly it's not for lack of power or ability. God must have had a plan. For whatever reason, and whatever the specific reasons may have been, is not our concern tonight. But for whatever reason, God wanted to stretch out his creative work over six days. And God wanted to create in a measured, organized, systematic way over a prescribed period of time. Six days was not an accident, as if God meant to do it in five, but estimated poorly and had to take an extra day. Right? God purposed then to leave the creation in an incomplete state at the end of day one. And God purposed then to leave the creation in an incomplete state at the end of day two. And God purposed then to leave creation in an incomplete state at the end of day three, and day four, and day five. God purposed not to finish His creation before day six. Regardless of the reason, and that's not in our purview tonight, God purposed not to finish His creation before day six. Six days wasn't random, it wasn't haphazard, it wasn't accidental. 
God purposed to create the world in six days, and then God did create the world in six days. He purposed then a process. God purposed a journey towards a destination. God purposed to leave the world in suspense for five days as to what the finished product would look like. God purposed not to do it all at once, but to do it progressively. So if God is God of the hills and the valleys, and God allows you to be in a valley, He must have a purpose for it. If God is God over the journey and the destination, and has you presently on a journey, He must have a purpose for it. If God is God of both the process and the outcome, and has you in a process, He must have a purpose for it. And if God accomplished a purpose so difficult as creation in six days, and if you don't think it's difficult, go try to create a universe from nothing in six days. If God accomplished a person so difficult as creation from nothing in six days, according to his plan, then surely God can accomplish his purpose of bringing the Israelites out of the wilderness and into the promised land according to his plan. And surely God can accomplish his purpose in your life whatever it may be, according to His plan. We see in Genesis 1, God's purpose realized of exist, creating all that exists in the span of six days. If God can accomplish a purpose as difficult as that, surely He can create, pardon me, surely He can accomplish simpler purposes according to His plan. Ruling over the affairs and circumstances of mere men on a small planet orbiting the sun amidst one of the quintillion of stars and planets in the sky. Right? If he can do all that according to his plan and purpose, then he can deal with our lives. He can handle it. What a God. He is God of the hills and plains. He is God of the highs and the lows. He is God of the process. And He is the God of completing the process. And He will surely and certainly bring His purposes to pass. The last thing we need to see in this passage as we examine the glory of God in creation is the effectiveness or efficacy of God's Word. When God was ready to create light, Look at Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. When God was ready to create plant life, look at verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. When God is ready to accomplish His purpose, He merely speaks the word and it is done. God does not sweat. God does not fret. 
God does not puzzle about how to accomplish His purpose. God purposes, decrees, and speaks, and as the psalmist says, does all that He pleases. When God was ready to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, He merely gave the word, and the waters of Egypt turned to blood. Frogs covered the land. Gnats swarmed the Egyptians, and then flies, and then hail, pardon me, and then God struck down the livestock, and then sent boils, and then hail, and then locusts, and then darkness, and then God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians. Finally, God drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. When God was ready to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, he just gave the word, and the very laws of physics were turned upside down. The very relations of cause and effect that we are accustomed to in our natural world were overruled. And the miraculous just occurred as if it was nothing. When God was good and ready to accomplish His purpose to bring Israel out of Egypt, God just gave the word and accomplished it and brought His people out of Egypt. And when God was ready to bring the Israelites into the promised land, He struck down their enemies before them. He, he bore the Israelites, as the passage I referred to this morning says in Deuteronomy. He bore them on eagles' wings and carried them into the land that He had covenanted to give to Abraham's offspring. Christian, when God was ready to bring you out of darkness and into the light, out of slavery from sin and death into eternal life, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 parallels the speaking of all things into existence and the creation of new life in our hearts. When God was ready, He simply gave the word, as He did in creation, and He brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. God is superior to all other so-called gods. Rather than having a small and limited sphere of power, God is the creator of it all and the ruler over it all. God is the God of the hills and the valleys. God's purposes are certain. And as the sovereign ruler of all, from His throne in heaven, He does all that He pleases. And when God purposes to do something, He merely gives the word and it is done. Which means that when God is ready to bring you out of the process to the resolution, when God is ready to bring you out of the journey and into the destination, when God is ready to bring you out of the wilderness, into the promised land, as it were, God will simply give the word and it will happen. But even here in the process, even now in the valley, even here in the wilderness, God is sovereign and at work in your life according to His purpose, for His glory and for your good, just as He was at work for those purposes in the nation of Israel to whom Genesis chapter 1 was written. Imagine what a comfort it would have been for the Israelites to see and to perceive these things that we've just discussed tonight while on the brink of the promised land. 
contemplating the prospect of war with the inhabitants of the land. Imagine how encouraging it would be to normal, average-sized men lining up in battle against giants. To know that their god was the god of the giant's land too. And not just the wilderness. To know that their god was sovereign and could overthrow the giant's army with just a word. What a comfort these things can be to us too as we consider our own spiritual battles. Christian, you have already seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. You have seen Jesus as your Savior, the law-keeping substitute for you, the punishment-bearing substitute for you, the resurrected and reigning King who has saved you from the slave driver of sin in order to live in subjection to Him instead. Thus you have already been called out of Egypt, so to speak. And you may be in the wilderness now, struggling along in life, facing hardships and difficulties of various kinds. You struggle to trust God for provision and protection amidst the barrenness and drought of this world, which is often a spiritual desert. Can God really care for you here? Does God really have the power to see His work of salvation through to the end? Or has He brought you into the desert to die? Christian, you are on your way to the promised land. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, you have already come. Tis grace that brought you safe this far, and grace will lead you home. God has not sent His Son merely to start a process in your life that He can't finish. God has not delivered you from sin's penalty only to see you remain bound by its power. Through all the difficulties and hardships of life, and there are difficulties and hardships of life, and that's normal for Christians, God is sovereignly accomplishing His purposes for you, teaching you to trust Him, to rely on Him, to believe that He alone is God, to look to Him in the midst of your struggles and to believe that He alone is worthy of your allegiance and worship and to Him first you should look for help. To Him first you should look for trust and not run off to find earthly allies and solve the problem by yourself as the Israelites we read about later on did in their history. God is going to bring you into the promised land at the end of it all. When your life is done here, and your body goes six feet under the cold ground, it will not stay there. On the last day, God will give the word, just a word, and you will rise up from that grave. On the last day, He will bring you up from your coffin. Even for those who are cremated, somehow, God will put back together the body. And the new body will be patterned after the resurrected Lord and Savior's glorified body. Death may seem to you now as a giant, as a son of Anak, 
But just as God put down the descendants of Anak before the Israelites to bring them into the promised land then, God will put down death through Jesus Christ to bring you into the promised land, even now in the 21st century. Just as God revealed himself as the glorious creator in Genesis chapter 1 to the Israelites originally, in order to put steel in their spines, so tonight he reminds us through his word that he is the glorious creator in order to put steel in our spines. The words of God to Joshua and the Israelites as they prepared for battle then should echo also in our ears every day as we go into battle nowadays, trusting in the same God. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The same God who was with them then, the creator of all things, whose purposes are sure and certain, whose word is effectual, is also with us now. Therefore, Christian, in view of who God has revealed himself to be in Genesis chapter 1, and in view of the fact that he is your God, in and through Christ Jesus, be strong and courageous as you continue on this journey, walking through the wilderness toward the promised land. For our glorious God is with us wherever we go. Amen.